This is the Weekly You Demon. All right, welcome to the podcast. We are talking all things postmodernism. Well, maybe not all things, but a lot of postmodernism. Hey, a quick note. The, the term postmodernism, as I'm using it, is not really accurate. Postmodernism is like a huge umbrella. I, I'm kind of using it as, a, as a, a substitute for the far left crazy theories today. And in that you have structuralism, various types of postmodernism, but also Marxism, which would not really be technically postmodernism. But I have to kind of jumble it all together because when you're trying to figure out what exactly they're talking about with dudes with penises saying they're a chick, you kind of got to pull in all different types of thinkers and it's really kind of just confusing. So, you know, keep that in mind as we move forward that when I say postmodernism, it's all that big jumble of leftism. As always, thanks for listening. You know, I ought to get like a postmodern theme song to you know, introduce these segments. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll sing one and have Meg take out a ukulele and come up with some sort of theme song. Probably not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm reading uh, this, this book called Springtime for Snowflakes. It's by uh, Michael Rechtenwald. Rechtenwald, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was a New York University professor who was just... A lefty, by the way. But kind of had kind of had it with postmodernism and the whole thought process, even though he to- he used to totally buy into it. And he was excoriated uh, by various leftward leaning academics, and he just gave back as good as he got. And then he came out with this autobiography last year, where he just basically um, he outlines his his journey into postmodernism and his journey back out. I'm about halfway through it. It's really good. And I, let me allow me a little detour here. Postmodernism is kind of difficult to get your head around. I mean, lots of subjects are hard to get your head around. I always recommend to, to, to younger people, especially, if you want to get into a subject to understand it, approach it through an easier subject. I'll, I'll give you a good for instance. There are a lot of uh, modern type of philosophies that I, I just struggle with. And I picked up Etienne Gilson's The Unity of Philosophical Experience. And that sounds like a heady book, okay? But it's not. Now, <laughs> here's why: it's history. Gilson taught me modern philosophies through the rubric of history. I understand history pretty well. I was a history major. I've always been infatuated by history. My dad loved history. I'm like history, history, history. But through history, though, I was able to get a better grasp of philosophy. In this book, Springtime for Snowflakes. It's autobiography, which is one of the easiest, in my opinion, one of the easiest nonfiction genres to read. So you read this nonfiction book, and then that gives you an entry into postmodernism so you can start understanding it. And it's just, it just makes it a lot easier. I, mean, I don't care if it's this autobiography, by the way, but any autobiography by, by an intellectual or someone who walks in those circles will, will get you into those, those ways of thinking. I'm also reading a biography about Rene Girard, G-I-R-A-R-D. Heck, if I know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I, I think he might be a thinker that gets us out of this whole postmodern mess. But, you know, again, biography, like autobiography, it's a good way to get into, into the thought process. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, sorry for that little 
little detour. I'm told those are enjoyable. I, <laughs> I'm not sure who agrees with that. But anyway, I'm reading this this uh this autobiography, Springtime for Snowflakes, and I, I just found it fascinating. There's a thing called standpoint epistemology, and I think we've all heard of heard about it. And it's, it's simply this: you white person can't understand what the black person's gone through. You haven't been there, therefore you can't think like the black person. Therefore, you can shut the hell up. And if you have anything to say about what the black person says, you can shut up because you don't get it. Hey man, you're a man. You have you don't know what it's like to be a woman, so you can shut up. You have nothing to say about our perspective. And it's all ridiculous. We all know that. We're all human beings. It's all very racist too. Uh, <laughs> to say that black people and white people think differently, that to me is like the essence of racism. Because if you think differently, probably one of you is better, one of you is worse. That's not necessarily true, but if, if, if there's, if there's a difference, good chance that one's better than the other. Anyway, we, we can flush that out at a different time. But we're all, we're all humans. That's the bottom line. But this whole standpoint epistemology, it's Marxist driven. And I didn't realize this. Now, it's, it all comes from a Marxist philosopher, Georgi Lukacs. <laughs> Georgi, I've never seen this name before, frickin' A. G-Y-O-R-G-Y, and the last name Lukacs. L-U-K-A-C-S. And he came up with this, this whole idea of, uh, what, again, what they call standpoint epistemology. Standpoint meaning this is my standpoint, epistemology is what I know. Epistemology is, is a philosophy of, of, of knowing. How do we know what we know? How do we, why do we think we know what we know? Et cetera, et cetera. So standpoint epistemology. That's freaking Marxist. This guy was trying to justify the, the working class perspective. He called it proletarian standpoint epistemology. <laughs> what an ass. So he, his old, his old thing was, hey, you can't understand what the, what the working class thinks. They've had experiences in life, being the subordinate class, being put upon, that you can't begin to understand what it's like unless you're part of the working class. This then was take, taken up in 1986 by Sandra Harding in her book, The Science Question in Feminism. She said the same thing. You don't know what it's like to be a male, and there we're off and running. You don't know what it's like to be homosexual, thank goodness. You don't know what it's like to be a female, etc., etc., this is a quote from uh, Richtenwald's book, Qu- and he's, he explains how the standpoint of epistemology ties into social justice today. And the, think about this; I think it's pretty penetrating. Quote: Social justice holds that membership in a subordinated identity group grants members exclusive access to particular knowledge, their own knowledge. Members of dominant identity groups cannot access or understand the knowledge of subordinated others. Unquote. So if you're in a subordinated group, you have your own individual knowledge. I don't understand how that doesn't mean people in the master group don't have their own individual knowledge. I'm not not sure I appreciate that yet. I haven't got my head around it. <laughs> not sure I want to. So <laughs> what what I find fascinating about this is this this Georgi Lukacs, he wasn't just a Marxist philosopher, he was a freaking Soviet philosopher. He was in like the Stalin camp. And I went on the Wikipedia page and I guess that's up for debate as to how Stalinist he was or wasn't. But clearly he is a favorite within the Soviet, within the Soviet system during the time of Stalin. 
He had various ministerial posts. And here's my point. Don't these leftists who bring him in today, who rely on his thought process, what he started, don't they have any sort of reservation that, hey, maybe this guy may have been whacked in the head? You know, propping up a system that was killing tens of millions of kulaks you know, in the Ukraine. A system that set up the Gulag Archipelago. You don't have any reservations about relying on this guy for your quote-unquote standpoint epistemology? Frickin' A. And I get it, to an extent. It's like, well, just because he was part of that system and he was kind of an apologist for that system doesn't mean he was necessarily wrong about standpoint epistemology, even though it was part of that system he was trying to prop up. Yeah, I, I guess, maybe, possibly. But, you know, if someone came to me and started saying, hey, I got all this information, this this great theory about child psychiatry, child development psychiatry, and I point out to the fact, hey, that dude's in prison for child molesting. He molested 30 people, 30 kids under the age of 10. I would hope you'd sit back and say, wow, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm terribly interested in this guy's you know, theories about childhood development. But, but let me reach out a little bit to my postmodernist brother. Let's face it, as, as Jordan Peterson pointed out, if you're a true, thoroughgoing, Derridian postmodernist, nihilism ought to be your position. Just either commit suicide because it's all meaningless, or just sit on the couch staring off into space. But we know that's not what you're doing. You're out there, you're, you're actively pursuing various goals through your Antifa-type attacks, through your identity politics, through your leftist causes. We know you're not adopting the nihilist disposition. So, we need to reach out to you. <laughs> it's like, hey, if you, if you just were logically consistent and just did nothing to shut the hell up, I wouldn't need to talk to you. But you're not. You're still, you're acting illogically in accordance with the premises, and you're still out there pursuing various goals and causing a hell of a lot of problems. So congratulations, you're being very disruptive. So I want, I want to try to reach out to you with the most value-neutral statements I can. Can we just agree on this? We exist. Hopefully that's simple enough. I exist, you exist. Don't even need to define what exist means, just we be. <laughs> you be, I be, they be. Whatever exists means, we can also agree, I believe, that we're both living. I live, you live. I think we can agree that we both want to continue to live. And that everyone wants to continue to live, putting aside the question of suicide either because you're a logically consistent nihilist or because you're whacked in the head. Putting those aside, we can agree, hey, we want to live, want to survive. Again, we're talking baby steps here. Baby steps. <laughs> because we desire to survive, we desire to eat. We desire to stay healthy. And because we desire to stay healthy... 
we desire shelter. Also because we desire to stay healthy and we desire to keep eating, we want to have a certain mode of security. Security helps assure our survival. These are just baby steps. These are things I don't think any reasonable person could disagree with. This is building the, the begins of a bridge to the, to the postmodernist. Now how about this? We all desire something. <laughs> and, and here again, put aside the Duridian, oh, uh, what is something or what is desire? Put that aside. Just using conventional language. We all desire something. If you don't desire something, that means you're 100% perfectly content. And none of us are. The saints come closest, but none of us are perfectly content. And therefore, we want something else. And I'm not saying what that something else is. It could be a big bag of weed. It could be union with God. It could be a million dollars. It could be the hot chick down the street. I don't care. This is a value-free statement. I think the postmodernists would like that. It's a value-free statement. We all desire something. And because we desire something, we all act. And I want you to cogitate on that word, to act. To my postmodern brother, you know you're acting. Your Antifa types act all the time. So don't come in here telling me, no, we don't act. And I also, and this is the part that hopefully will kind of blow your mind, my postmodern brother, my Deridian dude. <laughs> Not only do we all desire to act, the term act, you can't Derridia it away, or can't Derrida it away. The word act cannot be defined by something else. Here's how Webster defines it. Let me pull this out here. I looked it up, actually. To act, it means the doing of a thing. <laughs> the freaking doing of a thing. I defy you to find me something less defined by definition than that. And, and I actually had to think that sentence through. I wrote it down. Find me something less defined by definition than that. Act. The doing of a thing. Just doing. Thing. To me, the word act, or to act, that's like the Brahman. You know, we've talked in previous episodes that the Brahman in, in uh, Buddhist metaphysics, that is just the thing, the one thing we all are as part of the ontological monism. It's not defined by reference to anything else, so it doesn't get wrapped up in this whole Buddhist Maya illusion. You know, where everything is, you know, nothing has individual existence. Each individual thing has no meaning because all it is is defined by something else. To act might be the Brahman, at least in the world of verbs. It just, it is. We all act. Now, a Deridian might say, yeah, but act is really the opposite of not acting. And that's, that's how you define it. Not to my responses, I don't think so. <laughs> and this is the brilliance of the word, of the concept of acting. Because it's not defined by reference to something else. We all act all the time. We're ontologically monistic actors. If you choose not to act, that's an act. It's like, Eric, go lift that 300 pounds. Which I could do, by the way. 
with two big freaking spotters. <laughs> go lift that 300 pounds. I go do it. That's an act. Oh, I declined to do it. I said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to lie down. That's an act. Declining not to act is an act. Everything's an act. You're acting to do the podcast. I act if I decline to do the podcast. All of it is an act. And all of it is in pursuit of trying to fulfill some desire, some sense of incompleteness. So if you're talking to a postmodernist, someone who's a Derridian type, maybe you can just try to come up with some of those baby steps to try to establish a bridge. But then hit them. Hit them with the concept of act. That is the Brahman among verbs. That is the thing that we can't contest. I don't, I, gosh, I'd love to see what Derrida had to say about this. I think Derrida might say, you know, he, he, he has a point here. That is one thing that's not defined by something else. So hit him with that and have them cogitate on the concept of act. And from that concept of act, I think we have a real good shot at building this bridge to postmodernism. And I'm going to flush it out in future episodes. Alright, I, I debated with myself whether I should let the cat out of the bag of why I was harping so much on those baby steps and on the word to act. And yeah, I thought, why don't, I'm not sure I want the, the postmodern <laughs> dude, <laughs> the Antifa person, to know where I'm coming from. But you know, let's face it, they ain't listening to this podcast. So where I'm going with this is towards Von Mises' human action. And it's not a coincidence that the name of this massive tome is Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, built on a doctrine, I guess, called praxeology, which is the science of human action. And it starts with that premise that we all act. Now, the, the Brotman type stuff, and me trying to, you know, to, to posit something that cannot be deconstructed, by the Derrida types. That was me trying to, trying to think it through. But I think von Mises is onto something that I think you, you can build a bridge, you know, a common human understanding through praxeology, through the, the science of human acting. All right, some lightning segments. I ran across this grape from G.K. Chesterton about Charles Dickens. Quote, Dickens is so plain that even scholars can understand him. Unquote. Justin was ahead of his time and condemning, condemning scholars like, like we know today is almost common sense. If you're if you're in the Ivy League or the Ivy Tower, you're probably a idiot savant. But it, that quote kind of reminds me of uh, Marshall McLuhan's flashlight analogy. He said, "A scholar, a scholar's expert testimony is like a powerful flashlight aimed straight at your eyes." Congratulations to Wichita, Cincinnati, Tampa Bay, Baltimore, and Arlington. You're the cheapest drinking cities in America. Great shame on Miami, San Francisco, Honolulu, Washington, D.C., and San Jose. They're the most expensive. And I can personally vouch for Miami. Holy freaking smokes. Now, in their defense, pretty much everything is expensive. It's not just drinks. As long as we're on it. Have you heard about the new Pura still? It's alcoholic water. Virtually no calories, just like a splash of coconut water, and then regular water, and then the alcohol. 90 calories. Seems pretty low. 4.5% alcohol, so it looks like maybe just a smidgen higher than 
like a light beer. I might try it out, but I I don't know. Just almost like I don't know, shooting the alcohol into your veins, maybe, or those idiot kids. <laughs> what do they they put like the tampon soaked in alcohol and they rock them and they absorb it that way? <laughs> Some insane thing. Which reminds me, at some point, I'm going to be railing against all drinking laws. I am a like a non-prohibitionist. I would eliminate every drinking law out there. And it's not from a, a desire to get three-year-olds drunk. No, it's just from a desire to normalize drinking so we get rid of its excesses. But I'll, I'll have to address that some other time. I'm going to toss out this nifty little formula I heard while I was listening to some mindfulness tapes. Pain times resistance equals suffering. That's pretty cool. And what the commentary is saying is we all have pain, but it doesn't have to lead to suffering. If you don't resist the pain, the suffering is zero. So I, I, think, I think there's a lot to it. Now, from a Christian standpoint, the traditional standpoint, you realize this is nothing else than accepting your cross. No matter what form, no matter how small you accept the cross, that's you not resisting. I'm really into essential oils. Yeah, I know. Just get a bag. It's kind of a chick thing. <laughs> I appreciate that 100%. But all I tell people when they tell me it's all hocus pocus and it's all stupid, that it has no merit, I point out two things. One, I was reading a biography of uh, Jack Dempsey about two or three years ago, and he was really into essential oils. But back then, they didn't call them essential oils. Uh, they just called him oils. And he put all sorts of oils in a hot bath. And he took them, you know, because Jack Dempsey, um, by the way, if you don't know who Jack Dempsey was, he was one of the greatest heavyweight fighters of all time. Some say the greatest. I remember Muhammad Ali one time mocking Jack Dempsey's fighting style versus, you know, his fighting style, how he would have crushed Jack Dempsey. And I, and I tend to agree with him, although I'm not, after reading the Jack Dempsey biography, I'm not sure I, I do agree with him. <laughs> no matter. <laughs> the point is, Essential oils were very popular, including with some of the top male athletes hundred years ago. They just didn't call them essential oils. Secondly, I'll just point to my anecdotal evidence. When I use essential oils, good things seem to happen. Aches and pains go away. The, the problem is, every time those aches and pains go away, or, or whatever good thing happens, there's always something else that could explain it better. <laughs> so the, the essential oils are a constant theme when these good things happen, but it could just be other things that are really doing it. So I'm not totally sold on it. But if, you, if you're a dude and you're thinking, no, nah, I'm not doing the whole essential oil thing and coming up with the different recipes or whatever, do this. Go to Amazon, buy Plant Therapies Peppermint Oil, and just start using it when you have an ache or pain. Bone, muscle, tissue, I don't care what it is. Just start putting it on. If you're not a believer after that, then bag it. So I'm a junior at the University of Michigan, and I take a course called Byzantine Theology with the great John Meindorf. Meindorf wrote a huge volume, maybe two volumes, I'm not sure, about the history of the Balkans. I, I got it from my dad's library. I haven't read it. It has a great index. I, I looked up a couple of sections I'm particularly interested in and read those, but this guy's one of the foremost authorities of the Balkans and the Byzantine Empire in the later years. So I took his course, 
Byzantine theology. And I remember one of the required readings was a book from from St. Vladimir's Press called Three Byzantine Saints. And one of them was Daniel Stylites. I've heard it pronounced Stylites, but it's really, I believe, Stylites. S-T-Y-L-I-T-E-S. Sounds like Skylight. And I remember reading this thing, and I was like, wow, I gotta... It's it's the original source, by the way. Original source material. Hagiographies of these Byzantine saints. <laughs> I remember thinking, man, I I really got... I, I gotta concentrate here. It almost sounds like this dude is living on a pillar. I was like, what the frick am I reading? And it turns out, yeah, that dude was living on a pillar. It's da- Daniel Stylites, a recognized saint by the Eastern Orthodox and the and the Roman Catholic Church. He lived on a pillar. So here's the deal. After Constantine converts to Catholicism in 313, Catholicism becomes established religion. At that point, people were deprived, people being wannabe saints. They were deprived of the prospect of martyrdom for hundreds of years. About 200 probably. Eh, more than that. Go back to the time of Nero. For a little over 200 years. If you're a devout Catholic, you always had the threat of martyrdom hanging over your head. At some point, a local mob or the state itself was going to come kill you. And that was called red martyrdom. Or later on, it was called red martyrdom to distinguish it from white martyrdom, which is what we'll get to in a second. But that was considered, you know, basically the highest calling. If you're actually martyred, if you're considered to be a martyr in the Roman Catholic Church, for you to become a saint, you don't need to have one miracle attributed to you, not two, because the first one was the martyrdom. That's how uh, that's how, how highly esteemed it is to give up your life for Christ, and, and with good reason. <laughs> if you can give it up like that, you must truly, truly, uh, you know, have something going for you. Well, after Constantine, that wasn't a risk anymore. If anything, you know, within fifty years after Constantine, when Christianity became more and more institutionalized, put aside. The reign of Julian the Apostate. That's a fascinating sidelight in history. We'll get to that some other time. But after Constantine, I believe it was Theodosius, especially, Christianity became the preferred religion. And people started becoming Christian or Catholic just to be on the inside, you know, to be in the inside circle. And therefore the real devout Christians became kind of disgusted with this. You know, they were no longer the the persecuted, which kind of set them apart from society. Red martyrdom was no longer a possibility, so people started pursuing white martyrdom, and it took all different forms, one of which was the desert. People went to the desert and lived as monks and hermits, and if you want to look at the beginning of that movement, start with St. Anthony the Great. But it took other forms, one of which was the stylites. These dudes would go out in the desert, and sometimes really not necessarily in the desert, to kind of look on the outskirts of town, and they built pillars. I can't imagine what they look like, to be honest with you. But they put these pillars like 10, 15, 20 feet maybe, I'm not sure, up into the air and put a platform on it, and that's where they stayed. No way to get water. No way to get food. No place to take a crap. <laughs> and this is, yeah, this is why I love history. you got to use your imagination. You know, you're going to become a hermit on top of this pillar. What's the end game going to be here? And all they did, they fasted, obviously, they had no food. They prayed and slept. And that's about it. One guy asked Daniel Stylites, they said, how, how is it you, uh, 
Because people can come by and talk to him, by the way, because they weren't that far out. So people can actually go talk to him and yell up to him, and they talk to him. In fact, many of these dialites do their their prayerful actions, you know, their meditations, contemplation. You know, they they did acquire a certain measure of wisdom, and people would come consult with them or chit chat with them or listen to their sermons because they'd often start preaching from from the uh, the dialite pillar, so to speak. And someone asked Daniel one time, "Is you know?" What is it like when you take a crap? Because I, I crap very dryly, like a sheep. So, so my Germans out there will probably appreciate that antidote. Germans, by the way, if you're not, not aware of it, they seem to have always been just obsessed with the body functions, especially taking a crap. Don't know why. And I thought I was one of the few people who knew that, but I, I heard Joe Rogan and one of his guests joking about it one day, so I guess it's kind of out there. Anyway. The stylites were a type of white martyrdom. Oh, and they got food, by the way. People brought them food. They would lower a basket off the off the pillar, and people would put bread and whatever and water into it, and then they raise it back up, and that's how they got their food. But strictly, 100% reliant on the well-meaning of, of people who liked them, and the people who wanted to help them. But it was freak shows like the stylites. And again, I don't want to say they're all freak shows. Daniel Stylites is a saint. Uh, he was a good man. They were These were good men. But they were kind of a freak show. And that then prompted, it was a spur to people like Basil, B-A-S-I-L, Basil the Great, and others to say, we, we need to get these guys under control. We need to get them in a community where you self-regulate, you regulate each other, and prevent these excesses like the Stylite movement. Because there are all sorts of, there are all sorts of other excesses out there as well. Anyway, so there's time of Lent. You know, if you really want to go out there and prove your mettle, <laughs> as a penitent, you know, why don't you go live on your roof for a while and see how that goes. Okay, that's a wrap for the week. Go check out the Facebook page, subscribe to the Twitter feed, tell your friends and family. Go to Demon Podcast for show notes and other information. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>